Hey Gateway and guests who are joining with us today, thank you for being here. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. While you're looking there, bringing you up to speed, we are in our fourth week now on um, a sermon series entitled Ephesus, Ancient Solutions for Modern Challenges. And the passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at today is considered by many to be the most significant portion of scripture in the whole Bible. Now, I know that's high praise. I also know that the Apostle Paul says all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. And yet, I even think to myself as a preacher, if I were to choose just 10 verses to preach on for the next 52 weeks for the whole year, it would be Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. So let me just give you uh, where we're going today. Paul is going to be doing two things for us. The first is he is going to be outlining to us why we need to be saved. That's the bad news. The first three verses of chapter 2 give us a whole lot of bad news. And my hope and my prayer for you as I've been praying this week is that you would have the the eyes to see and the ears to hear and a heart that is open and willing to hear this bad news because the second thing Paul is going to do is he's going to show us how God saves us from all of that bad news. The gospel message comes to bear, verses 4 through 10. And along the way, as Paul is doing this, uh, Paul is going to dispel some of the deeply ingrained myths that are alive and well within our culture, both within uh, people who don't believe in Jesus and who are far away from Jesus, but also, unfortunately, many of us who are devout followers of Jesus, uh, some of these myths are still alive and well in us too. Reason being, all of us have a sin nature. So I want to start there. Uh, If you're following along in your sermon guide, I've said it this way. These are the things we would all like to believe. And the first one is this. We all would like to believe that at our core, we're all basically good people. It's not that we're bad people who do bad things. No, we're, we're basically good people who at times are a little bit weak or we're a little bit confused and we make mistakes, um, but really we're good people who just do bad things. In fact, uh, famous psychologist Carl Rogers, he put it this way. He said, in our hearts, we're basically good. And our main problem is that we have lost our our inner goodness and certain societal structures have obscured it. So we're basically good, but sometimes we make bad choices. We're not evil, we're not depraved, uh, we're not morally corrupt, mainly we're, we're good people. And you know what? Most of the time, other people are just messing it up for the rest of us. There's just a few bad apples that ruin it for the rest of us. And that's the second point. The problem with the world isn't me. It's not you. It's other people. Other people are the problem. See, I know that I'm definitely not the problem. And for all of you who are watching today, you're probably not the problem. But it's other people. It's that select few people who, who are, are wrong in the world. And, and we saw this on Shining Display this past week. If, if you watched the presidential election uh, debate, 
Um, you, you saw just the, the, the two opposing sides, and, and we could see so clearly that the problem with America or the problem with the world is the left, or the problem with the world is the right. People who don't share the same ideological perspectives as I do. Or the problem is those select few people who are just messing it up for, for all of us. See, I, I know that right now, some of you who are watching this message, you're probably cheating on your taxes or you're cheating in your business. And perhaps the way that you are justifying those things is, as you might say things like, you know what, uh, it's not like I'm Michael Milken. It's not like I'm Bernie Madoff, right? If you don't know who these people are, Bernie Madoff, he had a Ponzi scheme and he stole a lot of people's money and ruined their lives. And Michael Milken did similar things. And interestingly, do you know what Michael Milken said? He said this, he said, it's not like I'm killing anyone. It's not like I'm a mafia hitman. And I thought that was a really interesting thing, the way that, that he would justify his, his own actions and, and the mistakes that he had made. And uh, even though this isn't a real life quote, this comes from a movie. I found a quote from a mafia hitman. This is coming from uh, the movie The Hit List, a movie that came out in 1993. I haven't even seen it. But one of the quotes in this movie is a hitman says this, well, it's not that I'm like Hitler. I only kill people who deserve to die. And what does Adolf Hitler say? Well, I don't know. I don't know what he says. But he said something, and he probably said the same thing that you are saying to justify your actions and your behaviors. He gives some sort of justification, some sort of greater cause, some sort of statement that states that the ends justify the means. And in our hearts, every single one of us, wherever you are on that spectrum, all of us, because of our sin nature, the traitor within, we lie to ourselves, we deceive ourselves into saying, at least I'm not like this. At least I'm not like that. And the problem with the world isn't me. It's not my sinfulness, not my depravity, not my evil. It's the people around me. And then the third thing that we see, the third myth we like to believe is that the path to heaven, or if you're not a Christian, uh, or if you're from another religion, you might say the path to nirvana, or the path to inner peace, or the path to health, wealth, and happiness, or the path to an ideal life, fill in the blank, is found through sincerity and morality. Through sincerity and morality. See, if I'm just good enough if I'm just righteousness, just righteous enough, if I can just follow the rules of my life enough, then I can have inner peace. Then I can have a good life. Then I can climb up that ladder and, and enjoy life to its fullest potential. Another way we could say the same thing is this. God grades on a curve and clearly I'm above average. There was a study that was conducted. Uh, this is a little bit old now. It's almost 20 years old. A university had a study and they polled 800,000 students across all of Australia and all of New Zealand. And the question was very simple. Here, here's what it was. It said, are you above average or below average in your ability to get along with and care for other people? Pretty simple question, right? Are you above average or below average in your ability to get along with or care for other people? 800,000 people were polled. Now, I just want to ask you, we, we can see logically 
that 400,000 people have to be below average, right? And 400,000 have to be above average. How many people do you think answered that they were below average? If uh, you're with family or friends and you're watching this, why don't you throw out a number? You think 400,000, 200,000, 100,000, what do you think? You got your answer? The answer to that question after 800,000 people being polled that question, the number of people who answered below was zero. Zero. Isn't that fascinating? See, we all see ourselves higher than we ought to. We, we all have these rose-colored glasses when it comes to how we see ourselves in the world. And so we deceive ourselves. We believe that at our core, we're basically good people. The problem with the world isn't me, it's someone else. And the way that we attain that the highest attainable life, and if you're a religious person, nirvana or heaven or whatever else have you, is that you just be really moral and really sincere and you do the best job that you can. And if you can do that, then you'll have a good life. And see, here's the difficulty in this. If we have that kind of perspective, then everything Paul is about to tell us is going to go in one ear and out the other because we're going to say, that's not for me. I don't need that. I don't see myself that way. And so this is why I want to tell you, each and every one of us, on account of our sin nature, we're bringing that into this conversation. We're bringing that with us. We're bringing that perspective with us. And Paul, right off the bat, in the very first verse, he is going to totally annihilate and blow up and destroy all three of these myths all at once. Are you ready for it? Again, my, my prayer, you, you have an open heart that you can hear this. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Paul says this, As for you, not someone else, as for you, you were dead, circle, highlight, underline, in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were by nature deserving of wrath. So here's what this means. To the message that claims that we're all basically good people and the problem with the world is other people and you just got to uh, pull up your bootstraps and attain morality and sincerity and everything's going to be okay, Paul says this, at your core, you were spiritually dead. You were spiritually dead. Now let's break this down. The first word that we have to focus on is that three-letter word, you, not other people, not someone else, not someone with a different ideological perspective, not a few bad apples, you. You are the one that Jesus is talking about here. You are the problem. You are the chief of sinners. And here's what I want to propose to you. I want to propose to you that we don't really believe that. Yeah, Paul says it in Scripture, and, and, and yeah, for those of us who follow Jesus, we, we want to profess that. But do we truly believe this in our bones? I decided to bring a bit of a, a whiteboard with me. I want to share with you how I think we typically view this. And so as you can see, 
I, I, I'm calling this the sin scale, and I have two xy axes here. And as you can see, this, is high, this axis is highlighting our moral record. And I got a couple names here at the bottom. We have uh, Adolf Hitler, got to include him, right? We have uh, Mother Teresa. And we also have the standard of God, how, how we need to exceed or to at least meet a certain standard. And right here, I just put the word average. Like, what is the average moral record of every single person who has lived on this earth uh, since the dawn of time? And I think typically the, the way that we view this is Adolf Hitler, you know, he's at the bottom, right? And so, like, he hardly even shows up on this scale. And then we have people like Mother Teresa, and we emulate her as like the most righteous, moral people. Do you know that uh, Mother Teresa, for her entire life, she always had disfigured feet? Because every single time she met someone who didn't have shoes, she would give hers away. And so her feet would be bloody and bruised and cut up. And then sometimes she would find shoes that were either too big or too small. And so her feet were always disfigured. She was constantly giving away. And if we could ever emulate someone, it would be Mother Teresa, right? And so we look at her and we say, you know, she's like right at the top of the charts. There's Mother Teresa. And somewhere between Hitler and Mother Teresa is the average person. So we say, you know, maybe it's right about here. This is the average moral record of people. And then finally, we look at the standard of God and how we should typically live our lives. And we say, well, you know, no one's Mother Teresa. But clearly, we can't live like Adolf Hitler either. And so perhaps the standard of God is somewhere around here. And so what we really need to do is to be as good as we can possibly be, to live a good life, and to not be too sinful, not be too broken, because at the end of the day, at least I'm not like Adolf Hitler. At least I'm not like the mafia hitman. At least I'm not like Bernie Madoff. I don't make those kinds of decisions. I'm not perfect, but I'm living a good life, and maybe that's good enough. And I want to propose to you that this isn't simply a myth outside of the church. In fact, it is alive and well in most religious circles. Let me give you an example of this from Scripture, an incredible story. If you have your Bibles open, turn to Luke chapter 7. In this story, Jesus is in the house of Simon Peter. And all the Pharisees are sitting with him in the house. They're sitting at the table with Jesus. And as they're talking, a woman runs into the house, an unnamed woman up to this point, and she begins to cry, and she washes Jesus' dirty, grimy, stinky, sticky feet with her tears. And she dries his feet with her hair. And she takes out everything that she has, expensive, costly perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, and she weeps, and she weeps, and she weeps. And the Pharisees make an incredible statement. They say this, If this man, being Jesus, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who was touching him, and what kind of woman that she is, that she is a sinner. They're sitting with Jesus, but they don't identify in their own heart of hearts and who they are as sinners. They treat her as a sinner, 
that, that she has a terrible broken record. She's made a series of poor decisions. And we know from uh, the, the context of that that she's a prostitute. She's been selling her body. She's made a, a series of poor choices in her life. And they look at that and they say, oh, gross, terrible, the, the lowest of low in the totem pole. Her moral record is the equivalent of Adolf Hitler at the bottom of the scale. And they know that they're not perfect, but they have a much higher moral record than she. And because God grades on a curve, they don't treat themselves as sinners. They only treat her as sinners. And that's alive and well in the church today, too. This myth is alive and well in the church. And so I want to show you a second graph here. And once again, we have the same names here. We have Adolf Hitler, we have Mother Teresa, we have the standard of God, and we have the average human being. But here's what I want you to see. In Romans 3.23, the Apostle Paul says this, All have sinned, all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when God looks at every single human being on the planet, over and against his standard, the law of God, this is how God sees every single one of us. Adolf Hitler, he's in exactly the same place. The average person, exactly the same place. And even Mother Teresa, as as benevolent and kind as she was, over and against the standard of God, in virtually exactly the same place. And when it comes to the law of God, the standard of God, this is what it is in comparison to what we can do. And so what we see from this is all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There is only one category of of people, sinners, of which we all are. And so sin has spiritually killed each and every one of us equally, you and me. So if the first word we need to focus on is you, the second word that we need to focus on is the word dead, D-E-A-D. You are dead to your trespasses. And and see, typically when we think of sin, we think of it as an action, right? We we think of uh, stealing or adultery like the woman in Luke chapter 7, or we think of cheating on your taxes or racial injustice or murder. Uh, These are all the bad things that you do, and on account of that, you're a sinner. But the word dead in verse 1, what it reveals to us, it shows us that, that sin is not as much an action as it is a condition of the heart, It's not that we do bad things and therefore we are depraved sinners. That's not what is being highlighted here. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Or another theologian, he put it this way. Jesus does not offer to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. And you might say to me, Justin, really? Dead? Like, like dead? Like, I know that there's some bad people. And I know that I've made mistakes. And, and I kind of view the mistakes that I've made in my life kind of like I'm um, in need of a pick-me-up, in need of a little bit of support, in need of a little bit of help. But at the end of the day, I can, I can help myself. But that's not what the Apostle Paul says. He says, each and every one of us, we are dead 
to our sins. And it's right here in this place that I was wrestling this past week. You know, a question that was just swirling around in my head for days this past week went a little bit like this. I've been thinking to myself, do, do Christians, let alone people who don't follow Jesus, but, but do Christians actually believe that we are truly depraved, that we are broken, sinful people, and that we are dead to our sins? Do we truly believe that in our heart of hearts? And you know, that this past week, I, I watched the presidential debate, and, and I was really discouraged. Then I went on social media, and I was even more discouraged. And I, I even shared this on, on Facebook. And, and then, immediately after the debate, I read an article uh, talking about the sexual assault allegations against one of my, my faith heroes, Ravi Zacharias. And I was just so overcome with grief. I looked at all the brokenness in the world, and all the finger-pointing, and all the vilifying, and even people that I care about, like, like Ravi Zacharias, who's done so much to impact my faith, and I just see brokenness everywhere, and I was sick of it. And I was so angry, and I didn't really know why. I didn't know why I was just so overwhelmed with anger and frustration. But eventually, over time, I began to see that the real reason why I was so distraught and so angry was because as I looked at all these examples of of moral failings and of finger-pointing and vilifying and and talking about how one side is better than another side and, and all that swirling around in my mind, I began to see myself in all those things. See, I was reflecting on the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 106, which looks at um, the sixth commandment of God, you shall not murder. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, it highlights that in order for us to follow the essence of that one out of ten commands, here's what it would look like. So, it it can be summarized this way. Whenever we belittle or hate or insult our neighbor, and here's how we can do this, whether it be by my thoughts, my words, even my looks or my gestures, or even by my actual Deeds and, and, and I looked at that and, and I said to myself, that is me. It's me. See, it's, the problem with the world isn't the moral failings of other people. It's not that a, a select few people have made a series of mistakes, but it's that in my heart of hearts, I am, I am a broken, sinful person in need of saving and, and that there's nothing that I can do in my own heart of hearts to save myself. And maybe, just maybe, for the first time in my life, I was able to catch a greater glimpse than I ever have previously of the depravity of the human race, yes, but of my own depravity too. Of my own. And once I came to that moment, and as I fell down on my knees, I, I realized a little bit more why, why, I need Jesus in my life. And so as I've been wrestling with this question, do do most Christians believe that they're truly depraved? My encouragement to you as, as your pastor is take some time this week, perhaps even right now, 
to look in the mirror and to see that the problem with the world isn't other people. The problem with the world is the sin that lives inside your heart. It's you and it's me. You know, this past week, Pastor Adam, he he reminded me of the Chilean mining accident. Do you remember that? Ten years ago, almost to the day. In fact, uh, ten years ago to the day, they were still below the surface. 33 miners in Chile went 2,300 feet below rock and metal to go mining. And then the earth began to shake and they were all caved in. And I looked at that story as Pastor and Adam, Adam and I were talking about this, and it's a perfect example of living dead men. For 69 days, they could do absolutely nothing in order to save themselves. Now, just let me add to this one more layer to the story. Uh, we know that of these 33 men, one of them was the most moral. Right? It stands to reason that one of the 33 men was the most like Mother Teresa. Maybe not that good, but of the 33 was the most moral. And it stands to reason that of those 33 men, one of them was the least moral. And yet the question that I want to propose to you, the question I would like you to consider is, which of them were more buried than any of the others? And see, that is hopefully a helpful picture into our spiritual brokenness, our our spiritual deadness when it comes to our desperate need for an intervention. All 33 of these men, no matter how hard they tried, they would not be able to pull themselves out. They were 2,300 feet below the surface and they needed a redeemer. They needed someone else to save them from their predicament to save them from their situation. And against the clock, 69 days, losing food, losing water, losing oxygen, in desperate need of saving. And that's where we are. Each and every one of us, we are spiritually dead because we are separated from God. Our cosmic condition against Christ makes us separated from God. Can we do nice things? Yes. Can we do moral things? Yes. But it doesn't change our moral condition. It doesn't change our spiritual deadness. We cannot exceed or even achieve the standard of God. And and so my hope for you, before I go any further, is to say this, dear Christian, dear skeptic, Dear unbeliever, the basis of the gospel is this. It's outlined in verse 3. We deserve the wrath of God, every single one of us. No one of us any less than anyone else. That's our condition. Now, I, I know that that is a whole lot of bad news. And maybe, just maybe at this moment, you're almost ready to turn this off because you say... That's a lot of bad news. It's not for me. But at this precise moment is where Paul flips the table, where he once again reveals to us the good news of the gospel. He does it two ways. If you look in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you see a a glimmer of hope even there, where in verse 1 he says this. He says, you were dead. Did you notice that? He doesn't say you are dead. He says you were dead. That's the first glimmer of hope. 
And then in verse 4, there's two words that burst onto the scene with incredible sweetness. Two words, but God. Each and every one of us were dead to our sin, and on account of that, we were fully deserving of the wrath of God, and we couldn't do anything at all in order to save ourselves. We were 2,800 feet, 2,300 feet below the surface. But God, let the force of those two words just just wash over you for a moment. God comes to the rescue. We were completely dead, completely helpless. We were helpless, but not hopeless. And so the second point that Paul gives us is that when it comes to our salvation, all the credit, all the credit belongs to God. Why? Because God. Verse 4, take a look at this. But God because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy. And what's the mercy? That Jesus Christ came from heaven down to earth, and then he went toward the cross, scorning its shame, so that we could be set free, so that every single time that God the Father looks at us, he sees the standard, but then he sees the the personification of Jesus, and on account of what Jesus has done for us, this is how God sees us. He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ in us. That's the mercy. So on account of that, verse 4 into verse 5, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And once again, I want you to notice that this past tense it continues in verse 4 and verse 5, right? So not only is, is he saying you were dead in your transgressions, like in verse 1, or when you used to live, verse 2, when you followed the ways of this world and lived among them at one time. But even in verse 4, he says you were made alive with Christ, even when you were dead in your transgressions. All of it is in past tense. Now, here's what this means. It means that even as we anticipate the coming of Jesus again, whenever that day comes, it means that our judgment day, when when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats and all of us bow down before Jesus and he comes to judge the living and the dead, on that judgment day, we, we actually believe that even though that judgment day is coming, the judgment day is also behind us. Why? Because Christ's death is my death. Because Christ's resurrection is my resurrection. And all of Christ's righteousness has been credited to me. And on account of that, when Jesus looks at me, when God the Father, the judge, looks at me, he will see the perfection of Jesus. That is why we can say the judgment day is coming, but also the judgment day has already passed. And then he continues verse 6. Again, listen to the past tense. And God raised us, past tense, up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I love this. I love the past tense because what we see here in this story 
for the Christian, for that person who, who steps over the line to follow Jesus, if that's you today, then what you get to say is, I am seated in Jesus' seat. I am given the seat of honor, not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done for me. And I am as spiritually safe as though I am already there. Imagine if you had that kind of hope. Imagine if you knew today, without a shadow of a doubt, that you are safe and secure in the hands of God. And see, that's the difference between these two charts. Because the moment we believe that we need to save ourselves by being moral people or being good people, on your deathbed, you could be thinking to yourself, did I do enough good things? Was I moral enough? Was I righteous enough? Did I do enough to to earn or to attain my salvation? You're always going to be questioning whether or not you have done enough. But the moment you die to yourself and you realize that you have been saved by grace and it is not of yourselves, that this is a total and complete gift of God, then and only then can we say my salvation is as good as done because what Jesus has done for me has been credited to my account. And that gives us incredible, incredible confidence. And then we get to the great summary of the gospel the last four verses. Let me start at verse 7 and go to verse 9. He says this, In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, really quickly, four critical things that we need to understand about the gospel of God. Four things. The cause, the means, the effect, and the promise. The cause, the means, the effect, and the promise. Let's start off with number one. The cause of salvation is the grace of God. The grace of God. Uh, In our sermon prep group this past week, we just started doing this. We get together on Tuesdays and uh, as as a group of people, and if I'm preaching, I I read the passage of Scripture and I say, what anecdotes or stories come to mind? Uh, What questions come to mind as we look at this? And and someone pointed out to me something I had never seen before. If you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, you'll see the word incomparable. Or uh, if you're using a different translation, it's the word immeasurable. And last week, we talked about the incomparable power of God. Remember that? The immeasurable power of God. How do we measure the power of God? Could we say it was the power of a trillion supernovas? And we discovered, no, that would pale in comparison to the power of God. That would cheapen the power of God. Even that, because God isn't at the top of the food chain when it comes to his power. He breaks the chain because he is the source of all power. That is why scripture can say he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He brings rulers to nothing. He even has power over death. So he has incomparable power. And one of the things that was highlighted to me this week for the first time is Paul once again uses that Greek word to talk about not just his incomparable power, but his incomparable grace the grace that he lavishes on you 
and on me. It is, it is so extravagant, so prodigal, so powerful that we can never fully comprehend just how gracious God is to you and to me. Grace means that God has done it all. So number one, the cause of salvation is grace. Number two, the means of salvation is faith. Look again at verse eight. I want to highlight something to you that is so incredibly profound. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, circle, highlight, underline that word this, is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. So here's the question I want to ask you. What is the this? Because he's talking about the gift, right? So the gift of God is this. But what's the this? Is it the grace or is it the faith? And if I can get nerdy for just a moment, we can see within the Greek language that the way in which the word this is structured in the original sentence, it is meaning to propose that both the grace of God and the very faith we have, the means by which we receive the grace of God, both of them are a gift of God. Both of them are a gift of of God. Now, now let me briefly explain why this is so important to understand. As Christians, we might finally say, all right, Justin, I believe that it has enough, that the salvation of God is by grace. It is entirely by grace and not by my moral record. It's not by my moral pedigree. And so we have to die to this myth. This is a cheap counterfeit. We have to die to it, and we have to realize that the standard of God was something we could not attain, and it was entirely the grace of God on account of what Jesus did on the cross. But then we might try to do exactly the same thing when it comes to our faith. We say, well, it's not on account of my goodness, but clearly I did something to be more receptive to the grace of God, and I chose him. I chose to believe in him, and other people didn't. But even that, the Apostle Paul is very quick and very clear to say, not so fast. Even the very faith you have is a gift from God so that no one can boast. And has it ever dawned on you that even your faith is a gift? That your faith is a gift. Even the very act of receiving the salvation of God through faith is a gift. God is the one who woke us up. He is the one who who restored us to our senses. God is the one who drew us to himself. In fact, what scripture says is that even if Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, scorning its shame, if it were not for the inner working of the Holy Spirit, none of us would choose him. Not a single person would bow down and give homage to Jesus and say, you are the Lord of my life. If it were not for the power of the Holy Spirit in our life prompting us to receive him. And so Paul makes it clear that both the grace of God and the very means by which we receive it, the faith that we hold dear, both of them are a gift of God. So the cause is grace, the means is faith, and number three, the effects of our salvation are good works. See, there is no way that Jesus can come into your life and you would not be forever changed. Any more than you could be hit by a freight train, a freight train and remain unchanged. If Jesus is going to come into your life in a true and sincere way, then it's going to change everything about you. The words that you say, 
your actions and your behaviors, the way that you treat your neighbor, and even the way that you treat your enemies. Everything will begin to change. This is what the Apostle Paul highlights when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of these are the fruit of the Spirit. If you have your Bibles open, I invite you to look at John chapter 15. I'm not going to read the whole chapter now, but you can look at it later. And this is a very famous passage of Scripture where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, I will produce good fruit in you. I am the one who's going to produce that good fruit. See, it's not as though we're we're the branch and all by ourselves in abstraction we produce good fruit. And if we produce good fruit, then Jesus says, wow, look at you. And then he grafts you into the tree. No, he says, you can't do anything. You are spiritually dead to your sin. There's nothing good that you can do apart from Jesus Christ. But when Jesus takes hold of your life, When you abide in Christ, when you are connected to the source of life and his life is shining through your life, then you will produce good fruit. It is the byproduct that proves that Jesus is alive and well working in your life. Like exhaust from your car when you turn on the engine, it is the byproduct. I want to give you one more example of this. A little bit earlier, I mentioned to you the Chilean mining accident. And you may or may not know this, but when they finally pulled out these 33 men, over a billion people across the world were watching live as it happened. It captivated the whole world. And I want you to see how these 33 men respond when they're brought up to the surface when they are resurrected with tears in their eyes and joy in their hearts and they embrace their loved ones and family and friends and and one man even brings up stones and and he gives them to the, the president and other people and he just wants to share his experiences. You can see the joy in their eyes. And see, when when you have that kind of transformational moment in your life, your heart begins to change. And so maybe, just maybe, as you look at this story, you can see that that, that is what happens when we experience the prodigal love and grace of Jesus. Take a look at this video. On our broadcast tonight, one by one, the miners trapped for two months are brought to freedom in a rescue mission the whole world is watching. While on the surface, the tears and cheers and joyful reunions. Again and again and again. Prayers answered. It all began shortly after midnight local time as a rescue engineer strapped into the 26-inch wide escape capsule named Phoenix 2 and then began the still unproven man trip below. 2,040 feet down a shaft through some of the hardest rock on earth. 17 minutes, 22 seconds later, first contact. It worked on the way down, and soon, as a billion viewers around the world watched the image like a transmission from the moon, 31-year-old Florenzio Avalos would prove with this first trip to the surface, the capsule worked both ways. 
At 11 minutes after midnight, as Florenzio was the first to end this 70-day crisis, his son, seven-year-old Byron, touched everyone's hearts. Up next, 39-year-old Mario Sepulveda. When he cleared the escape pod, his celebration thrilled a nation. He surprised Chile's president and rescuers with souvenirs, pieces of rock from the cave-in. His energy belying a man trapped in a mine for more than two months. They now call him Super Mario. He hugged and kissed just about everyone. And then said of his ordeal, I met God. I met the devil. God won. No one I love that story. On account of the hard work and the labor of others, of someone else, they had been set free. So the cause of salvation is grace. The means of salvation is faith. The effects of salvation is good works. And fourth and finally, the promise of salvation is this. What God started in you, he is going to finish. Look at verse 10 with me. He says this, For you are God's handiwork. Some of you, your translation might say workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. See, that word, that word handiwork, it's the Greek word poema. It's where we get the English word poem. I think this is a pretty beautiful picture where God says he has started writing a poem in your life. You are his love letter. You are his poem. You are his workmanship. And he's composing your life into a beautiful song that will glorify his name to others through you. And that's why he can say that in verse 10. See, he's already pre-planned these good works in your life. He's already been orchestrating all these things to happen in your life. And all that you and I are called to do is to to yield ourselves to Jesus and to say, take my life, Jesus. Take all of it. It is yours. And the promise of God is that what he has started in you, certainly he will finish. See, that's why it's so important for us to realize that the, the true path moving forward isn't that we're basically good people, and that there's a few bad apples and they ruin it for the rest of us. And, and the best path moving forward toward heaven or nirvana or the best life is through sincerity and morality. Because all of that will leave you wanting more. At the end of the day, you will see how fruitless and how empty that kind of life is. Because more than anything else, we, we have to come to grips with our own sinful state, with our own depravity, with our own brokenness, because only there, when our hearts are humbled, can we truly see what Jesus has done for us. Will it humble our hearts so that we can reach out our hand and say, God, I want more. I want more. Take a hold of my life. And then you begin to see your neighbors in a whole new way, too. We'll stop saying things like, if only people saw the world the way that I did. Imagine for a moment if every single person on the planet shared your ideological perspective. And always, 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 who you vote for in a political election came true. And the, the views that you had, everyone else believed. 
and that on account of that, we had a much more moral society. But then at the end of the day, they did all the right things, but they were still far from God. What good is it? I think of the words of Jesus when he says, what good is it if a man gains the whole world and yet he still loses his soul? What good is it? And then we begin to see that what we need, what our neighbors and co-workers and friends and family members and even, yes, our enemies need, is a picture of Jesus. They need to see their own depravity, their own sinful state. They need to see that they are dead to their sins and that it is only by the power of Jesus that they can be set free. I was wondering how to end this service today. And I thought to myself, we we can't have a message like this without asking whether or not you, the listener, have stepped over that line to follow Jesus. If you've ever received the gift of God through Jesus Christ on account of him dying on the cross for you. And so if you haven't, I want to lead you in a prayer and I want to invite you to pray with me. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to pray too because maybe, just maybe, this myth has been alive in your life. Maybe, functionally, it has been working its way through your heart and through your head. And maybe, once again, we just need to repent of that and to realize that we are saved not by ourselves, but that this is a gift of God. And so I want to encourage you to pray with me too. So let let me pray over you. Let's pray together in these words. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to save me from my sin. I see now that I was dead to my sin and that there was nothing that I could do to save myself. And I ask, Lord, that you would give me the humility of heart to see this more vibrantly and more fully than I've ever seen it before. And I ask, Lord, that you would forgive me of my sins, that by the power of Jesus, you would heal me so that I can walk in fullness of life with you. And I ask that you would give me your Holy Spirit to walk with me because I know that even though I have the gift of salvation, that sin is still creeping at my door. And so be with me, Holy Spirit. Lead and guide and direct my path and help me to share the good news of the gospel with others who do not yet know it. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and my Savior and my Redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.